0: Well, hello, and welcome to today's Argus Crude podcast brought to you by Argus Media. I am with my colleagues here, Heike Gugaraas, editor-at-large in Washington, and London chief economist David Fife. We'll be exploring a topic that's very du jour, the broadly discussed but detail-elusive G7 price cap proposal on Russian oil. Now, Haik, can you just take us just a little bit through what the outright objectives of this policy are?
1: Yes, uh, thank you, Roxandra and uh, David. I look forward to this. In, in sum, there are two objectives to this. First one is to keep the Russian oil in the market after December 5th, when the EU implements a ban on imports of Russian crude, and at the same time, implements a ban on provision of services enabling transportation of. Russian crude uh, to third countries. So the goal is to keep those barrels in the market globally and at the same time, and this is the second objective, to impose a price cap on those exports to third countries uh, so that Russian revenue from those sales would be well below market rates to enable that price cap to work the ban the EU uh, ban on provision of services enabling transportation of Russian oil will be uh, tweaked to include a caveat a specific explicit exception that such services can be provided so long as the buyer pays a price at or below the price cap. So that's the the twin goal and We can probably talk about whether it's contradictory or not. But to me, based on uh, the guidance issued by the US Treasury and US Treasury officials' uh, comments, it seems to me that the primary objective is to keep the Russian oil in the market and then uh, ensure that when it's sold, it's sold below the market rate because they do talk about a variety of acceptable outcomes uh, some of which do not necessarily include it being priced at exactly the price gap
2: so so hi i mean it's uh it's david here hi hi to both of you you know you you, you talk about this uh essentially being a g7 proposal i mean is it is it assert that uh, the entirety of uh the g7 and for that matter the European Union are on
1: board for this, politically speaking? They are on board at the top leaders level. The leaders of G7 countries when they met uh, this July, approved it, gave it, uh, gave the idea to go ahead. The finance uh, ministers of G7 approved basic proposals. You know, I'm going to roll back uh, the tape, hopefully the recording uh, will catch up. The G7 leaders approved this idea at the level of principles back in July. The finance ministers of G7 uh, met just in the beginning of September to approve the specific framework uh, on which it is going to be based. So yes, you can say that uh, there is a G7 approval. However, it does require EU to act, because EU uh, is uh, implementing this ban on services. It's going into effect in December Uh, and for it to be changed, it would require a unanimous decision by all EU members. And we all remember how long it took uh, for the European Commission to agree to the so-called sixth package uh, back in May and June. And it included a lot of force trading, for lack of a better term. Um, It included uh, a specific carve out, for example, for pipeline uh, imports into the EU. So we would probably expect a similar process, but at the political level, uh, at the level of leadership, there is an agreement that something like this has to be implemented along those lines we just discussed.
0: So that's kind of how the policy is set out. But can you give us a little bit of detail about what exactly it comprises? What do we know about the actual price level? What do we know about support for it for the deal?
1: Those details, interestingly enough, uh, are still uh, not finalized, although we are less than three months from the implementation date, the implementation date being December 5th. And so, first of all, the price gap is going to be fixed it's not going to be tied to a benchmark it's not indexed it's a fixed number and uh, what we know about the crude uh, price gap and i'm stressing crude because there will be separate price gaps for refined products two separate ones roughly speaking divided between heavy and light products but that is yet to be determined which products. The crude price cap will be no lower than the Russian cost of production. And the Russian cost of production is referenced in actually the Russian federal budget at $44 and some change per barrel. So we know that it's not going to be lower than that price. Then, of course, oil never trades at cost. Even in principle. So there is some freight cost add on. There are some other technical factors to be added. But so far, those have not been finalized. So we know how the price cap works in theory. We know, at least for crude, the lower bound of it. But we don't actually know what the price cap level will be. We know that it will be fixed. Uh, It may uh, differ from region to region and it will be adjusted as uh, time goes on. So the idea, the basic idea is to provide an incentive for Russia to cooperate. So if it's set less less than the production cost, Russia would not cooperate, obviously. Uh, So there is presumably a carrot there uh, for continued sales by Russia, but of course, of course, that is the basic assumption of the entire price cap plan that Russia will cooperate, even though uh, Russian President uh, President Putin threatened to withhold crude from any buyer who supports the price cap, and it's it's a threat that seemingly is backed by a parallel Russian retaliation on gas markets. So. Uh, My question, actually, if I may, to you, David, how seriously should we view this rationality assumption and what would you think Moscow will do?
2: No, that's a very good question. And, you know, as you say, we've had uh, statements both from uh, Minister Novak and President Putin himself who's saying, look, if you adhere or you go along with this G7 price cap plan, then we're simply not going to sell oil to you. Now, the the sort of rational actor assumption would say, well, Russia will keep selling oil. Now, why is that? Why do we say that? Last year, oil export revenues alone were worth about 180 billion to Russia uh, in 2021. Now, if you look at their total export revenues for everything, oil's about 40% of total export revenues. Gas, is about 10%. So, arguably, the the economic hit that Russia takes from withholding gas supplies is considerably less than the hit they would take if they stopped selling oil into the market. Um, So, just from an economic pain standpoint, you tend to think if Russia's going to be rational about this, uh, they're going to be a lot less... Keen to withhold oil supplies to the market than than gas supplies for that reason. The second sort of rational actor uh, criterion is is one that's really tied in a to the sort of lack of storage capacity onshore that Russia has, and therefore, you know, if they're if they're not exporting it, what are they going to do with it? They don't have much storage capacity, uh, and that's going to be a constraint on them 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 uh, cutting cutting off exports, and that then would lead to the supposition that they'd have to cut wellhead production. And of course, once you get into that territory, then you're looking at potential damage to reservoirs or or reservoir pressure degradation and so on. So that's the sort of rational actor view that says, no, Russia will actually, they're bluffing, and actually they'll carry on uh, uh, exporting oil. But of course, <laughs> the big issue here is, you know how rational will russia be as the ukraine crisis rumbles on and the conflict rung- rumbles on you know and that's impossible to say at this stage um i suppose i the question i would pose is uh we've also got to think about another group of producers who may respond to this price, price cap issue which is opec plus russia's part of opec plus um, you know, how how willing are the rest of OPEC uh, going to be if we're going to see, you know, what, one to two million barrels per day uh, of Russian exports diverted out of Europe and potentially sold into Asia at discounted prices? How does that look from other members of OPEC? Alexandra? what do you think of that?
0: Well, first off, I'll just uh, I'll throw this back at you for one second and say, do you think that Asia can really absorb everything that Russia has to send?
2: No, I mean, you know, our our working assumption, or the 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 assum- the assumption of uh, Argus Consulting, really since the crisis began, you know, Europe last year bought about three and a half million barrels per day of crude and products from Russia, our working assumption, with no real uh, detailed insight on on the logistics of it, has been that maybe one and a half to two and a half million barrels per day of that three and a half can be diverted to Asia, um, leaving, a, you know, sort of one to two million barrels per day that potentially might be lost to the market. So what we're saying is, yeah, between one and a half and two and a half million barrels per day. Potentially gets diverted to Asia, and certainly we've seen crude, extra crude going into China and India already. Um, so the, really, the question there is, you know, how does how do how do other OPEC uh, producers view this prospect? You know, potentially losing a slug of their market uh, to discounted Russian barrels.
0: So even you know, as you as you're saying, even if it's not the full volume of Russian exports that gets diverted, even if it's just a fractional a fractional volume of supply, that's still a considerable chunk of crude that would be technically diverted towards what is classically a very mini producer market. Now, the interesting thing is that Russian crude would not be selling on the same kind of terms as mini producers tend to. Position their barrels. Those are tend to be done on uh, term arrangements with term costs to customers. You buy your annual crude supply volume and you know a year ahead what your requirement is going to be for the year incoming. And actually, we've seen we've seen Iraq basically make the same argument by saying: look, we know India has been purchasing quite a lot of Russian crude on a spot basis. But we are still very secure in India, where they are typically leading supplier, because we know that they will also be separately prioritizing their term agreements. So in that sense, it isn't a like-for-like comparison between Russian crude and OPEC crude. OPEC as an organization has typically always valued the sanctity of the alliance above individual temporary gains. The question that becomes that that comes in is whether they would be able to accommodate Russia in this particular market that has been a safe haven of growth for so many of them, especially Saudi Arabia, which you know alongside Russia is de facto leader of uh, the OPEC plus group. Um, So it'll be, I think, as we approach the period when consumers have to define their term requirements for 2023, as we also approach the same deadline for when uh, Europe phases out Russian crude, I think it'll be very interesting to see how many buyers decide to lower their their intake of term crude in favor of opening up more requirements on a spot basis and taking Russian crude. So I guess, obviously, we have Russia and OPEC and the G7, and everyone is looking at the big, big buyers. We're talking India, we're talking China, and they're all asking themselves the same thing, which is the same question that I just asked. How will these buyers react? Will they step in to buy more? Will they decide that for political merits or for logistical merits? they can only take so much.
1: And if I can add to that, uh, there is also a rationality assumption uh, on the part of this plan that the buyers see a clear advantage to them in participating. Um, And of course that assumption will be put to test. But um, I mentioned earlier uh, there is a, a variety of acceptable outcomes uh, to this plan. At least as far as the United States government is concerned, um, we have senior uh, Treasury officials saying, "Look, even if uh, not every country uh, joins the price cap, uh, if not, if in fact if most buyers do not, but they negotiate deals uh, with Russia." Um, and use the price cap as leverage. Um, th- from the u s. perspective, that's still a win. So you will probably see a press release, you know, highlighting that, you know in in January, if it uh, turns out that India or China uh, buys discounted uh, Russian oil, that would still be considered uh, a win. Uh, so that may or may not have come as a result of the price cap. And of course, we know that, a lot of those buyers are already buying a discounted oil. Uh, so, but just uh, in terms of communication uh, as to the objectives of this plan, um, I think there is a great degree of uh, acknowledgement on the part of the Treasury, uh, on the part of the sanctions uh, for it is that it's quite possible that many will not uh, join the price cap. But so long as they negotiate below market deals with Russia, that is viewed. Um, as a victory, at least from Washington. Um, and of course, everything here hinges on whether uh, market participants themselves uh, comply. Um, this isn't sanctions, right? Uh, this isn't sanctions in a sense that Iran and Venezuela uh, sanctions regimes were applied. Uh, The Treasury guidance that came uh, on September 9th uh, includes uh, two words that are critical for any sanction lawyer, safe harbour, which means uh, limits to sanctions liability, at least for the providers of insurance, reinsurance uh, and financial services. Any party that doesn't exactly know the price but is underwriting a contract All they have to do is attest that their clients told them that the price was right. Um, So I'm sure a lot of sanctions lawyers um, along the line of uh, trade of oil will be looking at this, but at least the message that uh, we are hearing from Washington, from the Treasury, is one of reassurance, uh, one of reassurance that it's okay to participate in this term. Yes, the price cap has to be obeyed, and uh, insurers have to do their due diligence. But they are not going to be held liable so long as their clients told them that they obeyed the price cap. So that's uh, that's a communication exercise. Um, we will probably see more and more of this. And of course, the treasury may be saying one thing. Um, they know they have to reassure every market participant about what it is that they are trying to do. And we will see a lot more of this guidance coming in the next uh, couple of months. Um, we have talked at least uh, two angles behind this price gap plan. We, we talked about Russia's participation, we've talked about the market reaction and the reaction of other producers. but. I wonder, uh, David, what else is happening potentially that could affect this plan, whether it's oil market specific or more broad. Yeah, well,
2: I, I think we've, you know, you've you've highlighted the sort of dual thrust of this policy or the the dual aims of the policy. First of all, cutting well, not necessarily in order, but cutting Russian revenues, but also ensuring that barrels continue to flow to the market uh, despite the European embargo. And therefore, limiting the sort of upward trajectory of prices potentially when uh, the European sixth package of sanctions uh, comes in at the end of this year and early next year. Of course, that may well be coinciding, uh, and it looks increasingly likely that it could coincide with a fairly major slowdown in the global economy. And in fact, uh, depending on the, 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 the economic forecaster that you uh, you ask about this, you know, there's a sizable number of estimates out there now that says, actually, in the first half of 2023, we're potentially looking a, at, at Europe, essentially entering recession after, you know, with the levels of, of natural gas prices uh, that we're seeing in Europe uh, and therefore electricity prices Europe's likely to be in recession over the course of the winter. And, you know, with the pace at which the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, uh, there's also a school of thought that sees at least uh, on a sort of uh, relatively short-term basis uh, around the turn of the year, the U.S. itself could well be in recession. Um, And so we confront uh, a price cap that, in a sense, could be uh, <laughs> rendered redundant if we see uh, outright economic recession and a weakening of oil demand, which actually itself allows oil prices to drop to a certain extent. Um, so that's something that, you know, uh, I doubt very much uh, uh, that the G7 members would uh, would be wishing for that to happen. Uh, but we need to look at the macroeconomic situation, which frankly... Uh, is looking pretty precarious uh, at the present time.
1: Absolutely. Um, thank you, David. And thank you, Roxandra, And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Argus uh, Crude Podcast. For this topic and many other uh, topics about oil markets, check out our uh, many publications starting with Argus Global Markets, Petroleum Argus, Argus China Petroleum, and many others. Thank you